Feeling blue, what do you do? We got stories to see you through that time of the month, that time of the month. Need a fix? Come get your kicks. We got tales by kooky chicks that time of the month, that time of the month. Hello, everybody. Welcome to that time of the month. This is our big anniversary show. This is our first year anniversary in Nashville. Yay! A whole year of inappropriate stories. This is so fantastic. Woo! Uh, no, we're, we, I always laugh because usually on the day of the show, it's torrential downpour, something's going on, and it's like, you know, tornado watch, or something is happening, and so I always felt like it was the Nashville gods not wanting us to air our dirty laundry in public, but as you see, it's been clear the last couple times, so I think the South is getting used to our storytelling show, <laughs> but I'm so glad you all can make it out to uh, enjoy this wonderful show with us. I'm so excited that all of these storytellers are here, and also in our 8 o'clock show, it's such a fantastic group of storytellers. My name is Melanie Bear. Did I say that? I, I usually don't say who I am. Um, <laughs> I started this show in Los Angeles, and I did it there for almost a year, and then my husband was transferred here, and so we uh, was decided to put out an ad on Craigslist. Didn't think anyone would respond, and I got fantastic stories. Actually, the first story I ever got was by this lady, Amanda Allen, who was also living in Los Angeles at the time and was moving here, and so I felt like, okay, this is, you know, I'm going to find these other women, and uh, so it's, it's grown and grown, and we found lots of women who like to share their stories and all their personal details like I do. Uh, so I'm very excited about that. Um, I'm also thrilled that my parents are here tonight. Ryan, Suzanne, Reno. Checking you guys in. I told them all the things they have to do. You have to put the sticker on them. You gotta give them a Hershey's kiss. They're like, oh my gosh. They were, they were very stressed out, but they did a great job, great job. Um, and I'm also very excited because my husband's boss is here, and his lovely wife, so I'm very nervous. I'm glad I'm not telling my digestion story tonight. Um, but, uh, if... That's my dad. You ready for your first story? Um, this first lady, I'm so honored she's here, and I'm so honored that she submitted, because when I read her story, um, she reminded me so much of my own mother, and her and her daughter is here today, and their relationship reminds me a lot of my mother and, uh, and my relationship. And she's just such a talented writer, so please give her a warm round of applause for Cindy Hinton Church. Baby fever, grandma style. I suffered from the worst kind of baby fever. The desire was rampant. I openly discussed my maternal longings with anyone who would listen and even those who were not willing to listen. 
I accosted strangers with babies and buggies or carts or those baby orgy things, asking borderline inappropriate questions about height, weight, and diaper content. I even prayed about it, which is a sure sign I had baby fever. Bad. Real bad. This baby fever was not for my own biological issue. I'd been there, done that, had the stretch marks to prove it. <laughs> no, this baby fever was for a different kind of baby. A grand baby. Now, Southerners are notorious for being slow in speech and movement, but in at least two areas, we are quicker than the non-Southern population. The first is childbearing. In my family, historically, childbearing begins in your teens. <laughs> it's like a family tradition. The second is gestational periods. The first baby can arrive in anywhere from four to six months after the wedding. <laughs> now, the rest of the babies take nine months. <laughs> this means women are grandmothers before they hit their 40s and sometimes much quicker than anticipated. <laughs> my mother was a grandmother at 38, and not by me, the oldest. My mother, my, and not by me, the oldest. My younger, by a mere 13 months sister, had a daughter when she was 20. Now, if you're quick in math, that, mean, that meant my mother had her second child by the time she was 18. Actually, she had three daughters before she turned 21, but we're not here to judge her. <laughs> by my standards, by this standard, I was quite advanced in maternal age when I gave birth to my daughter. I was 23 years old. <laughs> Within a few months, my two sisters also gave birth to daughters. Thus, we all had girls the same age, plus the first granddaughter, who was three. I remember thinking back then that if my daughter waited until she was 23 to have a child, I would still be in my mid-40s, assuring that family tradition lived on. I could sleep at night knowing this. <laughs> now let's fast forward 23 years in the future. The year was 2004. My 45-year-old sister had four grandchildren. The other sister had three grandchildren at the tender age of 41. I, however was grandchildless. How did this happen? How could this have happened? My 23-year-old daughter, Jennifer, was a college graduate living in the big city of Atlanta. She was totally non-cooperative. No baby-making desires for her. No biological clock ticking. No hurry to marry, let alone reproduce. I began to question my decision to send her to college. <laughs> And the years ticked by. My 40s evaporated like a perennial wallflower. I waited as those around me became grandmothers. One of my sisters even shared two of her granddaughters, but that only made my barrenness more profound. Well-meaning friends and family members would try to help me by dispensing pearls of wisdom, such as, stop talking about it so much. It will happen when you least expect it. Ooh, you have dogs. They're almost like grandbabies. <laughs> or my personal favorite, since you don't have grandkids, you can afford to remodel the kitchen or take a vacation. <laughs> Well-intentioned liars, I hated them all. Secretly, of course. I could not stop obsessing about babies. They were everywhere. 
Everywhere I turned, I saw a younger woman with a baby on her hip, accompanied by an older woman. It was a picture-perfect Norman Rockwell painting of three generations having a party I was not invited to. <laughs> I didn't want to remodel the kitchen or take a vacation. At the risk of alienating pet lovers everywhere, dogs are not fur babies. <laughs> I refused to dress them up or let them eat from the table. When I hit 50, I began to think Jill, the miniature schnauzer, might be adorable in a tutu at Halloween. <laughs> what was wrong with me? At this rate, I was headed down a path that might lead me to book a cruise with my husband. <laughs> That's a whole different kind of crazy and a story for another day. Finally, hope appeared on the horizon in the form of one awesome son-in-law. On her wedding day, Jennifer was 28 and a half and I was 51. Could I detect two generational ticking biological clocks? I squashed the inclination to search and destroy any artificial means of birth control in their honeymoon life. <laughs> Turns out, despite the fact that I gave my daughter a lavish wedding, it did not automatically mean that nine months later I would be issued a grandchild. Instead, I was issued what amounted as a cease and desist order. <laughs> I was expressly forbidden from using the words grandchild, grandchildren, or grandbaby in their presence or in the general public <laughs> until such time as they deemed it was necessary. I have been admonished to stop talking about babies by my daughter, my son-in-law, my friends, my family, and a fake Santa when I sat on his lap to ask for a grandbaby for Christmas. <laughs> Time to bring out the big guns. I didn't want to play the religion card, but desperate times, desperate measures. We are Catholic. My daughter's Catholic, her husband's Catholic, his family's Catholic. Now, according to our faith tradition, in theory, they should be able to have their own TLC show. Jen and Neil plus ten! I did what any Catholic mother would do. I began to pray the rosary. Ah, oh, the Virgin Mary. The quintessential Jewish mother intercedes for a Catholic mother. Now that's a one-two punch if there ever was one. <laughs> On a side note, I used to say those forbidden words all the time. When I was alone in my car at night when I said my prayers, I have a right to privacy and religious freedom, and I'm pretty sure the ACLU and the Virgin Mary would have my back on this one. <laughs> After the kids had been married a year and a few days after Christmas in 2010, I was handed a red paper bag that contained a forgotten Christmas present. Ooh, I do love presents, early, on time, or even late. All I could find in the tissue was a rectangular laminated card. When I turned it over, there it was, a sonogram picture of my developing grandchild. <laughs> So many times I imagined this scenario in my mind. Usually I was calm, collected, and received the news with a self-satisfied self smile. I would then lovely, lovingly hug my daughter and give a wink and a nod to my son-in-law. I would express with my extensive command of the English language how much I love my own child, her husband, and their unborn child. A flute of champagne would be raised to commemorate the event. My husband 
would say something memorable about how I didn't look old enough to be a grandmother. <laughs> if you're going to be delusional, you might as well go hog wild with it. I'd only been playing this little scenario in my mind for nearly 30 years. It sounded or looked nothing like that at all. Mascara and decorum me down. All I could do was stare at the picture and cry. I didn't hear much else. In the background, my son-in-law was explaining the fetal development. My daughter was weighing in on the will it be a girl or will it be a boy, and my husband was proclaiming how his future grandchild appeared to be a lima bean. <laughs> All I heard was a clock that stopped. In a millisecond, it was replaced by a heartbeat. Hidden Church. Thank you. Oh, wonderful. You should kick the show off great. Yay. Um, oh, that was so great. And uh, not to make the show all about babies, but, you know, I'm in that mood. Um, <laughs> I got in touch with women who have done the show in the past and invited them to do our special anniversary show, which was kind of like, you know, the, the highlights of the year, the most unforgettable stories. And first I contact this girl named Amanda Robinson who told this really hilarious story about breastfeeding and pumping at the office and having to kind of do that and go home and it was just this crazy uh, situation going on there. And uh, I asked her to do the show, told her the date of the show. She's like, oh, I would love to do it, but I'm supposed to be having, giving, delivering my baby that week. I didn't even know she was pregnant because she did the show about 10 months ago. So she couldn't do the show because she was pregnant, and then I knew I was pregnant. And then the next person I contacted to do the show was Amanda Ayland, and she told me she was pregnant. <laughs> so everyone I was contacting was pregnant. Uh, but Bonnie has told me she is not pregnant. So are you pregnant, Patsy? No. Okay. <laughs> My, no. No. Okay. So only two of us. And speaking of this lovely lady, I she was in our very, very first show here in Nashville, our um, debut show, which was April 2012. And uh, so I'm, I've been wanting her to come back for forever, so I was so glad that we are doing this special show so that I could have her back. And I know you guys will just love her story. It's titled C. Please welcome Amanda Ayland. Hello. Um, I felt the need last time to clarify that it's C-S-E-E -E and not to Spanish. C, you know, not Spanish. Um, so, growing up in Florida, I was what some would call chubby. I was eating, the, I kept eating those Swiss cake rolls and reading in my room, and my stomach kept growing. It's funny how that works. In PE, I righteously walked the mile when I wasn't injured. In middle school, I took refuge from the sun in an arts program that used dance class as a substitute for any real physical activity. High school, I went the college prep route. Instead of going to gym class, we argued about the social constructions that make us think athletic equals good. <laughs> Sorry, I mean we were nerds. <laughs> Through the magic of crash diets and not entirely legal pills, I managed to keep-ish the weight down without ever touching a sports bra. But in college, I got sick of always wanting but never having that 
gooey, cheesy, chocolatey, crunchy pile of caloric goodness. So, after gaining a little more than the freshman 15, I decided to give the free gorgeous gym three feet away from one of my classes a try. The first time I opened the door, I got hit with this wave of ball sweat. <laughs> I could feel the testosterone crawling toward me. As I walked around, those foreign machines seemed to salivate over my doughy body. And then the final blow. People. Actual living people. Watching me attempt to make myself look better. My worst beefy nightmares, all of them. <laughs> But none of that mattered after I became invisible. I can't exercise with my glasses on. People? What people? When I have my glasses off, I can't see anyone. Invisible. I planned my trips to the gym with maximum efficiency. Get in, get out, that was the goal. This sometimes meant changing in the car while driving. I wouldn't dare step into a locker room. And it always meant stretching was for losers. <laughs> but super invisible Amanda met her match about a week later when OMW, Old Man Workout, came strolling in. If you've been to a gym, you've probably met him. He's that old guy who might or might not be suffocating from memories of his dead wife and definitely won't stop talking. No matter how obviously you're wearing your headphones or how much you just plain ignore him, OMW just can't resist the gym chat. Weather is always good for starters. That's his appetizer. Then he eases into the entree, politics, throwing in an offhand racist-slash-homophobic remark. You move to a different machine, he follows. Move to a different city, he's there, too. With a little less hair, maybe, or a bigger gut, doesn't matter. There is no escaping old man workout. My first year living in New York, I worked out at home to fit TV. No money, no time, blah, blah, blah. In case you're unfamiliar, this is a cable chan channel dedicated entirely to getting you in shape. It's led by instructors who aren't good enough to have their own franchises, and couldn't keep tempo with the music if their sweatband depended on it. But they definitely have, and I'm sorry to have to use this word, they have a lot of spunk. And just in case there's a question about this, no one should ever, ever abbreviate numbers. When seven becomes sev, I turn you off. But I was working out for, what, 45 minutes at most, bouncing around my tiny living room in Sunnyside, Queens, using chicken soup cans for weights. I began to feel inadequate, and my downstairs neighbor began to feel murderous. So that's when I became a runner. No joke, I really did it. Went from couch to 5K, then on to 10K, and everything was wonderful. I was strong, capable, and actually going outside on purpose. I even found the perfect location, a cemetery. Those cadavers were no longer capable of vision or thought. I could finally be truly invisible, and I got to shame a bunch of dead people with my very beating heart. <laughs> and then winter came. I hate winter. Evil winter forced me to abandon my Grateful Dead and get a gym membership at the Y. Not only did I lose the ability to step out my front door and get my workout the hell over with, or as I would describe it publicly, connect with nature, <laughs> I also had to wear a lot of additional clothes. 
Walking into the Y, my workout gear was hidden beneath a shit ton of layers. Which, bonus, doubled as an airbag the 12 or so times I slipped on my way to the gym. <laughs> Ice is very confusing for Florida girls. <laughs> so all of this meant that I had to de-winterize at the gym before I worked out. I had no choice. Uh, it was time to pop my locker room cherry. This was about four or five years after I started working out, and I managed to avoid the locker room all that time. I thought only suckers came to the gym in regular clothes. This sudden use for the locker room was almost as mind-blowing as when I realized where tampons go. <laughs> okay, maybe this moment was a little less life-changing, but it was just as icky and a major blow to my invisibility powers. The first time I walked into that salty, steamy box of human, I was sporting approximately 15 extra pounds of clothes. My cheeks were on fire, my glasses fogged up, and when the lenses cleared, there they were, the naked. <laughs> yes, the naked. I don't know if it's the same at the Green Hills Y, but in Queens, ladies, most of them Asian and old, naked ladies, live in the locker room. They have no problem with their nakedness. They sit on benches, naked. Talk to each other, naked. Walk around, swinging, pooching, rolling, naked. For someone who has always walked the thin line between self-deprecation and total self-hatred, someone who had body issues before she was born, this was an experience. In this steamy palace, you could be as naked as you wanted to be. Nobody noticed your flabby arms and Edward James almost legs. They didn't think about your one small boob and your dry, cracking feet. Nobody cared. And there's beauty in that. It took me another two years to take the final plunge and actually get naked in the locker room. And when I realized the towels at the Y were the stupidest, tiniest towels in the history of the planet, I reminded myself, nobody cares. People have their own stupid stuff they're worried about. And even though most adults have achieved this realization, we forget. Whenever I need a reminder, I take a trip to the locker room. The naked ladies are always there to remind me how to be invisible, just as old man workout is always there to prove I exist. <laughs> of course, none of this means I've stopped going through five different wardrobe changes before deciding on what to wear to the mailbox. It doesn't mean I don't still think my hair should go fuck itself. It doesn't mean my kinkles aren't ruining my life. It doesn't mean I don't want to remind you all that I'm pregnant and don't have a gut. But after a mere half hour of complete mental breakdown, when I know I'm staring at the final product, like it or not, I can say to myself, nobody cares. <laughs> and hey, OMW will talk to you no matter what you look like. <laughs> still working out now that you're pregnant yeah do you go running okay yeah me too at first though I you know you get on the blogs and everything and you're like oh my god like I can't do anything like I, I you read all these horror stories and you know it's like don't run don't get overheated like well. so I was like okay so I stopped like doing everything and then 
we had our first doctor's visit, and my husband said that's all I asked. We're like, well, what about this? What about this kind of a what kind of this kind of a lift? What about jackhammers? What about? Um, I was like on the ground doing push-ups and dips and stuff, and uh, he was like, we need to talk about the baby and not just your workout and <laughs> Barry's boot camp. Um, but I was very nervous because you're like, you're in the yoga class and you're like twisting. You're like, oh my God, I think it just popped out. Like, oh my God. Um, <laughs> so now I go to the, the prenatal yoga is really good. But people don't believe me, the things we do there. We actually yell. We yell out. Like halfway through the class. It's very odd. Um, but they say it's going to come into play at some point. So... Um, anyways, let's on, on with the show. Our next lady, uh, she blew everyone away the first show, and then she came back the next show, or it was, I think it was like just the next show. She came back, or it was two shows after that, and um, just people fell in love with her for her wonderful stories and her charisma and her Herman, and, um, <laughs> and I know a lot of you are here to see her tonight, and we just love her, so please, warm welcome for Patsy Lawson. is called No Questions Men. As far as I'm concerned, all of our family drama occurred in silence because the focus was on what was never spoken at our house. That topic was sex. I inherited old parents. Daddy was 50, Mama was 40 when I was born. So by the time I reached puberty, a word neither of them had ever heard. <laughs> Daddy was 62 and Mama was 52. They were East Tennessee mountain people, both with eighth grade educations. Mama looked and acted more like a man. <laughs> she chewed tobacco, never wore a bra for any occasion, Milked cows, birthed calves, killed hogs and chickens, and mostly ran the farm because Daddy wasn't around much during the daytime. He hauled freight from Knoxville to other East Tennessee towns nearby. Mama was good with any farm emergency, but she was a total failure with sexuality and all related matters. Her attitude was clearly communicated. I ain't answering no sex questions. <laughs> Around the age of 11 to 12, I, like all my girlfriends, wanted to find answers to all of our sexual questions. Putting together what my friends said about their own breast buds, their mother's advice, and the Sears and Roebuck catalog, I decided that if I ever got breast buds, I wanted a training bra. <laughs> Using my cooking knowledge at the time, I guess my new breasts were about two tablespoons full, <laughs> which would equal a triple A size bra. I also had difficulty figuring out how they would train my buds. <laughs> but believing firmly that all breast buds needed to be trained in some way. <laughs> One day I summoned up my courage and told Mama I needed a training bra from the Sears catalog. She looked shocked and said to me, 
what's that and what's it used for? I gave her the information from the catalog, and she said, you don't need one of them things. They'll choke you. <laughs> I asked how a training bra could do that, and she said, I wore one of them once, and it cut my breath off. <laughs> Besides, you ain't got nothing to put in it anyway. <laughs> then she walked off, leaving me standing there in shock. My friends said their mothers had gotten them a bra. Guess that wouldn't be the case for me. I never had another discussion with Mama about bras. I ordered my first bra from Sears and Roebuck catalog myself. The order form asked for size, but I didn't know what 32, 34, 36 meant. Nor did I know cup size, A, B, C, D, or E. So I guessed. My first bra was a size 38C. <laughs> For a girl who I now know wore a size 32AA. <laughs> I figured out I was leaving enough room for growth. <laughs> right after I figured out the bra questions, I was hit by another crisis with another sexual matter, menstruation. My primary method was to ask all the girls who had younger mothers because they appeared willing to talk about sex. If Mama could not talk about breasts, I already knew she would be useless on this topic. <laughs> Some of those early bloomers already had their periods. I got lucky one day while looking through a magazine and found a Kimberly Clark advertisement for a booklet in time. What every girl needs to know about becoming a woman. For me, this ad was like discovering gold. I ran home, read the ad fully, copied the address carefully on an envelope, and sent it off along with my dime, which was to cover postage and handling. <laughs> the ad promised to send the booklet in a plain brown envelope. <laughs> my next problem to solve was how to retrieve the plain brown envelope from the mailbox without Mama knowing I had, I had sent for it. I dedicated myself to being the person who got the mail each day until that brown envelope arrived. It arrived in about a month, but on the day it arrived, I hid it and myself in my room until I could get it read and understood. It was amazing with diagrams and pictures and answers I could understand. I must have read it six times that day. In the front of the booklet, there was an explanation of why girls have periods and how to know when to expect your period. There was information about managing cramps. Toward the back of the booklet, there was a list and pictures of Kotex products to be used during that time of the month. There were sanitary belts and a variety of sanitary napkins, tampons and pictures explaining where they were placed, and answers to such mysterious questions as, can a tampon become lost in your body? <laughs> Here were all the answers I wish my mama would give me. After I read the booklet several times, and sh I memorized it, I went to school, and I shared it with every girl I knew. 
I now think this was my first step in my career as a teacher. <laughs> About a year after the booklet arrived, I had my first period. It was there one morning when I awakened. As excited as I was to have finally arrived at womanhood, I still had to tell Mama about it. How could I tell her that it had occurred when we had never discussed the process? What words would I use? Mustering up all the courage I could find that morning, I walked into the kitchen where Mama was scrambling eggs at the stove. I simply said, I started my period. She looked shocked, stopped working with the eggs, which then burned, as she walked away saying, I'll take care of it. She walked into her bedroom. I stood by the stove and the burned eggs. About ten minutes later, she came back with a pair of my white panties, to which a thick layer of clean claws had been torn the size of the crotch and pinned into the crotch with the safety pins underneath. Handing them to me, she said, Here, put these on. You'll need to change the rags daily. That was it. I was horrified. What was this? I had imagined a sanitary belt and a Kotex bed, just like the one in the booklet. I imagined something modern, or at least something that looked medical. <laughs> Several days later, after I had recovered a bit from my shock and had time to think, it finally occurred to me that she had given me the same solution she had used herself to manage her own periods. Later that day, on the day I had started my period, I came home from school. I told my daddy that I needed to go to the drugstore and get some stuff. I didn't know what he knew. I didn't care because it was something I had to manage on my own. I bought a sanitary belt, a box of Kotex, and from that point on, Mama and I never had another conversation about the issue of sex for the rest of my life. This was an important lesson for me personally because I took control of my own body from that point forward. While family drama focuses often on fights, resentments, harsh words, physical and psychological abuse, my family drama was more about problems that were unspoken, never addressed, not, not understood, which frequently placed me in a conflicted and in, in decision. Sometime before Mama died, I finally found the courage to ask the question I had always wanted to ask. Why were you never willing to talk to me about sex? Her answer was simply, I knew you'd eventually find out anyway. <laughs> I wanted something more profound. <laughs> and here's a postscript. By 1970, just as I had finally figured out my true breast size and was getting comfortable with menstruation, the women's movement arrived, and I joined the protest in full swing. <laughs> yes, I threw my bra away in, sport, in support of the cause. Yes, Mama was right after all.
Lindsay Lawson, keep it going. Are you guys ready for a little testosterone? Guys, are you excited to hear from the guy's point of view now? Uh, well, he's not just our token man. He's also an author, and he's a former minister, actually. And his, he has this great book called Bus People, and I read it, and now my husband is reading it. And it's just it's so engaging. He, for some crazy reason, decided to ride on the Greyhound bus around this country for a month. Very crazy. But um, he wanted to get to know people's stories, and, um, and what else? Why else did you write this book? <laughs> and it's very very engaging and his subtle uh, sense of humor just it really really makes it a lot of fun to read um, so I, he'll be selling them after the show over there so anyways um, and yes Patsy was in the family drama show and so was Cindy and so was Mike it was a very popular show um, so that's why she was talking about family drama a lot. That was in January. And so we're very thrilled to have Mike back here tonight. So please give him a warm welcome for our brave token man, Mr. Mike Pentecost. Thank you, Melanie. How fun is this? This is just, uh, this is great. So as Melanie said, this is a piece on, uh, on family drama. When the soloist reached the crescendo, Did you ever know that you're my hero? <laughs> At the First Methodist Church in LaGrange, Illinois, I wanted to puke on my rented tuxedo. <laughs> My father was gazing lovingly into his bride's eyes, oblivious to the absurdity of it all. As the best man, I was flanked off to my dad's right while I looked at my sister, a bridesmaid, and we just rolled our eyes at one another. You see, it all went to shit about 15 months earlier. My mother waited until the day I graduated from high school to gift my father with a Dear John letter that ended their 28-year marriage. It took my dad all of a month of hardcore grief to find a Lonely Hearts Club in suburban Chicago and begin a dating ritual that culminated in this very special wedding. <laughs> He had indeed found the wind beneath his wings in the form of a secretary for an ear, nose, and throat specialist in Hinsdale, Illinois. Out of what I can assume was a fear of being alone, he jumped at the first companion who let him get his carrot wet and gladly set set aside lifelong interests like fishing, playing golf, watching sports, anything that we typically would do together. For him, the trade-off was worth it. (laughs) Selfishly, it was a season of major upheaval. I was off at college, trying to figure out who I was and what I wanted to do. But home was no longer home anymore. 
You remember those college years. Those are in-between years. Because you're not really a kid anymore. But deep down, it's still nice to have a place that you call home. The divorce made that impossible. My J.C. Penny stereo was now in storage, and the Farrah Fawcett poster was thrown in the trash. <laughs> My parents had sold our home and gone their separate ways. And so now whenever I went home to either of their new homes, I was sleeping in some multi-purpose craft room <laughs> adorned with quilts and dried flowers. It felt like I was sleeping in the gift shop of a Cracker Barrel. <laughs> but tumult had long been a part of the game. My father moved around constantly due to his job with the government. In fact, I attended eight different schools between kindergarten and high school. So I knew what being the new kid was all about. And I found that humor and a willingness to put myself out there was a risk worth taking and ultimately necessary for survival. And in fact, I'm grateful for all the places that I got to live and people I got to meet. I'm still friends with many of them in Maryland and Chicago and dotted all over the country. But there's a part of me that is envious of people who have deep roots. I would love to be here with my family in the audience. Not necessarily to read this story, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> when we visit my wife's family up in Ohio, her bedroom is still intact. A shrine to her childhood. <laughs> Stuffed animals are carefully arranged on the bed, standing guard over a room with so much history. Framed family pictures, sorority trinkets, and college textbooks populate her shelves, marking the bridge between adolescence and adulthood. When I try to get her to mess around with me, <laughs> knowing that her parents are sleeping in the room 15 feet away, it is always met with resistance, and that makes it feel even more like we are back in high school. <laughs> But the longing for roots and home that I feel is most acutely present around the holidays. I remember when we first married, as newlyweds, we tried to carefully negotiate uh, the holiday trade-offs and navigate those waters which can spawn so many disagreements. We tried to evenly parcel our time out between Thanksgiving and Christmas but that was a losing proposition, as neither of our families was happy with our infrequent commitments that threatened the sanctity of their holiday traditions. While my in-laws tried to maintain the same Thanksgiving and Christmas rituals they had for years, drunken turkey potlucks at Uncle Dick's and Eggs Benedict on Christmas morning with the neighbors, my family's holiday traditions had imploded. But for some reason, and I think it's society or our culture, um, we get set up on this fantasy of what holidays are supposed to be like. 
So I get nostalgic for holiday traditions that I never even had. <laughs> and honestly, those traditions are probably never all that great. The homes and the food were constant, but that was about it. My family never really got along all that well. My grandma picked fights with my mom. Knowing that my mother had toiled for years as a real estate agent, I vividly remember grandma blurting out at Christmas dinner that, you know, all realtors are crooks. <laughs> On one special Christmas Eve, Aunt Helen told my ultra-conservative grandmother that she didn't believe in any of that immaculate conception crap. <laughs> he got here just like everybody else did. But even with those peccadilloes, it was our story. It was my family, and it was what I knew. When that all went away as my parents remarried and drifted to different states, I tried my best to carve out new holiday traditions with my wife and our two children. We would make the appearance with my in-laws and try to include them in our newly emerging traditions, but it still felt new and uneasy. But I think that's how traditions are supposed to be, because you can't recreate magic. You can't force it, either. It either happens or it doesn't. The memories and commensurate helpings of nostalgia are the property of each participant, told as they see fit. Well, for that reason, I began a tradition that started as a way to make people laugh. The holiday letter. The same device I employed to try and fit in and make new friends as I moved around now served as a surrogate tactic in dealing with the holidays. That Norman Rockwell stuff is a joke. I don't buy it when I get the letter from Aunt Susie and Uncle Ted where they chronicle every milestone and achievement of the past year. The perfect kids and their amazing accomplishments. The exotic and memorable vacations. You know the letters I'm talking about. You've put them on your refrigerator with a magnet or stuck them in a basket but you read them, and you roll your eye. <laughs> well, it's been a hectic year. In March, we were pleasantly surprised when Bob and Peggy stopped by to see us on their way back from Florida. Daniel made the honor roll this year and was recognized by the youth orchestra as the most improved member of the brass section. <laughs> My health has been a struggle. <laughs> But we keep being reminded over and over how much support we have from family and friends like you. You've gotten that letter, right? <laughs> so in response, I have sent out letters like this over the last decade. Now, I've had to pair the list of recipients. <laughs> striking my parents, my aunts and uncles and people who I just didn't think would get it off the list. So this letter was reserved for a few select family members and most of my friends. So please, a sample from 2008. Dear friends and family, we hope this letter finds you well. 
After a year hiatus in writing a Christmas letter and a disciplinary spanking from my mother, I have decided that I am an adult and will continue this important holiday tradition. You can about tell how old the kids are by looking at the picture, so I won't bore you with any of their accomplishments. They are healthy, as is Erica. So on to me. <laughs> it's been a trying year. In January, I started to notice some blood in my stool. <laughs> Hoping it would go away, I ignored it. But it didn't. After a digital exam from my general practitioner, he recommended a colonoscopy. After drinking about half of what they recommended I consume of the horse laxative, it was gross and I figured it had gotten the jo job done already. I put on some loose-fitting britches and headed into the endoscopy joint. As the sedation started, my mind drifted to thoughts of Katie Couric's husband, soon followed by visions of Erica riding in the passenger seat of her new husband's convertible, laughing, throwing her head back, hair waving in the wind, while his man jewelry shimmered in the afternoon light. After the scope was over, Erica was there, faithfully holding my hand. There would be no trip to the Mayo Clinic. No biopsies. After being chastised for not cleaning myself out well enough, I was informed that I had a mild case of hemorrhoids. Once I overcame that brush with death, I've started living better. I drink more water and eat more beans. I vacuum and do the occasional load of laundry. Our marriage has been taken to a new level. We are regularly intimate, and I owe it all to realizing how precious little time we have on this planet. Other highlights of the year include the hostas that we planted out in front of the house have really taken off. They have provided some really attractive ground cover. On a recent road trip, I noticed that our Pontiac was sitting on 88634. I knew that the odds of looking down and seeing all eights were long, so about 50 miles short, I said, Erica, only 50 more miles. Don't let me forget. She forgot to remind me. But in a moment that was perhaps divinely inspired, I happened to glance down and for three blessed seconds stared at a perfectly symmetrical row of eights. Eight, 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 eight. That will never happen again. At least not in this car. Following a hailstorm that was imperceptible to the human eye, our insurance company concluded that we sustained enough damage on our 15-year-old roof that they would slap on a new one for the $500 deductible. Erica picked out a sandy brown composite color, which looks quite sharp. 
Well, enough for now. Looking forward to an exciting 2009. Stop by if you get to Nashville. My parents were taken off the Christmas letter because my mom said, you're not sending out another one of those letters, are you? One friend sent me their Christmas letter complete with a column from each member of the family. Have you seen that? Everybody contributes like a newspaper column. And he hand wrote on the top, we know that we're the very ones you're mocking, but we hope you enjoy our letter anyway. You know, maybe this literary middle finger isn't the best way to deal with my own sadness about the disappearance of holiday traditions, but I choose to believe that every family has their own set of drama beneath the veneer of a glowing Christmas letter, or memories of caroling and drinking hot cocoa. I hope my kids will be up here 20 years from now with their own interpretations of our special dysfunction. <laughs> I think that's how it's meant to be. Mike Pentecost, give a big round of applause. <laughs> that is just classic, classic story. Um, Dad, you enjoyed that, didn't you? I heard your laugh. <laughs> okay, we have two more stories for you. How's everybody doing? Are you guys all right? Are you having fun? Okay. Um, our next storyteller also has a book out, and the, the way this book came together, it's called Hiking the Pack Line, Moving from Grief to a Joyful Life, and it happened, uh, she seems to just attract really unique experiences into your life, is that kind of what happens with you? Yes, but she kind of just rolls with life, and um, no, I think, I think you're particularly special. Uh, she said everyone does, but um, she was on a chat room, you know, and helping another um, grieving widow with, she had written so much beautiful stuff that it was suggested she put it into a book. And that's how this book came about, and I hear it's wonderful, and I can't wait to read it, so she'll be selling that also, if you'd like. Um, and that's also how this show kind of came about. We were in a writer's group together. I didn't know her, but I loved her dry sense of humor. And I was like, oh, we have this storytelling show. You'd read your story on stage. And she looked horrified and quickly bolted from the meeting. Um, I did not think we would ever get her on stage. But she, she came here, and she has been a favorite. She's been back twice now. Please, please welcome Bonnie Chappelle. than two years, my life had changed radically. My husband had died, I lost my job, I sold my home, found another job, and moved to Tennessee, a state where I knew absolutely no one. But life was pretty good. I liked my new job, my great co-workers, my pleasant home, a few new interests. Yes, life was good. But on my way home from work, I would often break into massive sobs. I was glad to be in the privacy of my own car, for my cries sounded like they came from the depths of hell. It would pass quickly, though, and I'd be back to my normal, happy self. I knew, but I knew life could be better. 
While visiting friends in Birmingham, Alabama, I had met Don, a life coach. He was my age, single, healthy, and best of all, he had a master's degree in mathematics. <laughs> the only a PhD in math could have been cooler than that. <laughs> Knowing he coached people over the phone and be willing to work with me that way, I decided to see if he could help me improve my life. Also, considering the fact that I think flirting with a man is keeping him engaged in conversation until he figured out I was interested, maybe there would be a side benefit to this coaching session. Before starting to work with Don, I committed to myself to be dead on honest and fully try all of his suggestions, no matter how scary or painful. My logical brain said it'd be a waste of money to hold back anything. During these sessions, Don would lead me to the edge of my comfort zone, and then he'd shove me over the edge. During one session, we focused on wanting to loosen me up. Why did I need to be loosened up? I have a good sense of humor. People usually like me. Being quiet is not a disease, but I had promised to go wherever he led. He asked if I'd ever had a massage. Oh, yes, I get those at the office. The lady comes once a month uh, to give a chair massage. No, he'd like to see them all. No, he had meant a full body massage. I am not overly modest. In locker rooms, I am amused by other women who are fearful that anyone should get a scrap of their bodies. I'm not a prude. I like men. I think they were put on earth for my pleasure. <laughs> Too bad I didn't have one at the time, but unfortunately that was normal for me. But the idea of getting undressed so a stranger could rub me all over, that started me stuttering. Seeming to enjoy my obvious discomfort, Don pressed the subject. I searched for a way out of the conversation. When he wanted me to get a massage before my vacation, that was my exit. No, my vacation was less than a week away, and I listed all the things that I had to do. There simply was no time. But Don persisted, and I agreed to look for a spa and make an appointment for when I returned. That year, my vacation was a week of backpacking on the Appalachian Trail. It was a tour designed to introduce women to lightweight backpacking. I mentioned to the other ladies that I had a massage appointment for when I returned. They ooed and they awed and told me that was a great idea. Maybe this massage I they did would not be too bad. After a long day of hiking with a 30-pound pack, I imagined that if anyone had set up a table along the trail, I would happily strip naked and fling myself onto, the, uh, onto it to have my sore muscles restored. It's easy to imagine such behavior when there's no chance of it happening. <laughs> Returning home, the dreaded day arrived. I printed directions to the spa and left in plenty of time. Getting anywhere in my new world was still an adventure. What had I been thinking? How did I get into this mess? With dread, I set off for the spa, made a few wrong turns, but got there with plenty of time to spare. First hurdle accomplished, but the stress had not diminished. When I presented myself at the desk, the receptionist said, You're late. Your appointment was at 2.30. Yeah. That didn't make any sense. I worked until 3. I could not be at two places at once. Mm -hmm. Then she continued, You called last week to change the time. I could not have called last week. There were no phones along the Appalachian Trail. <laughs> well, that's what our records showed, Sylvia. Now it was clear. They thought it was someone else. My name is Bonnie. 
But the next problem, I had no appointment. I could escape, but that would mean I'd have to go through the stress all over again. The spa owner was standing nearby and now got involved. They had personal, my personal information, but no appointment. They concluded the girl who made the appointment simply had not collected safe. The owner then offered to personally give me my massage right then. <coughs> so, the first massage for this uptight, introverted nerd was about to be delivered by Bobby. <laughs> he asked if I had any areas that needed special attention or that he should stay clear of. Being cool, I said, I will put myself in your capable hands. Did I say that? It sounded like a joke or a bad pun. Not every day, calm, cool exchange. We walked down the long, somewhat shabby hall, the strip mall rental suite. I had expected beautiful, exotic decorations. I expected palm trees. I wanted to feel like Cleopatra. We arrived in a small back room. The lights were low, a few candles flickered, filling the room with pleasant aroma. Soft music accompanied by ocean waves was playing. This was very nice. Maybe this wouldn't be too bad. Then Bobby said a ridiculous thing. <laughs> Undress to your level of comfort, get under the sheet, and lay face down. Undress to my level of comfort? Was he kidding? My level of comfort? Why didn't I bring my camping long johns? That's my level of comfort. <laughs> but my logical brain took over again. If I left my underwear on, it would let him know I was not comfortable and may affect the quality of the massage I received. <laughs> also, if I left my underwear on, Don would make me do this damn thing all over again until I was comfortable being totally naked with some stranger rubbing on me. I decided to get it over with and remove my underwear. While waiting for Bobby to return, my heart was pounding. I was sure it was audible to the people in the next room. Bobby returned. Oh my. He slid the sheet from my shoulders to my wa uh, waist and folded it. Then, standing at my head, he touched me. <laughs> Strong, firm hands gently slid down both sides of my spine, from my neck to my waist, then moved slowly back along my ribs. <sighs> the air escaped from my stressed lungs and my heart rate dropped to a healthy, relaxed beat. That's great. He chuckled and said he had not even warmed up yet. Frequently, he stopped to carefully adjust the sheet and expose another part of my body. By this time, I would not have cared if the sheet had fallen on the floor. I wanted to yell, I'm paying you to massage me, not fold the laundry. <laughs> but I knew, he would keep, I knew he would lose his license if he glimpsed one millimeter of non-state authorized flesh, so I kept quiet. At one point, Bobby became concerned and asked if I was okay. When I roused myself enough to ask what he had said, he realized I was not unconscious, just totally relaxed. <laughs> then, too soon, it was over. Bobby told me to take my time to get dressed and come out to the front desk when I was ready. I know men sometimes pay women to give them great pleasure, but it had not occurred to me that I would have paid a man to give me that great pleasure. <laughs> I was still staggering on relaxed legs and wearing a big, shit-eating grin when I made my way to the front desk to make my appointment for the following month with Bobby. <laughs>
Bonnie Chappelle, give him a big round. Are you getting used to this now? Is this like the massage? Or now you're used to it? I keep wondering why I do this. <laughs> this one uh, is, is titled Moms and Money Belts, and it's, it's dedicated to my mother. Um, okay. You guys ready? Ever since I can remember... My mom's been warning me about being sold into the sex slave market. <laughs> it was just everyday conversation at our breakfast table. Mom's version of a pep talk. Bad men will pay top dollar for cute, two cute blonde girls, mom would say. Now, do you want your eggs scrambled or dippy? <laughs> it wasn't until I was in college that I realized mom may have been overstating things a bit. I also discovered that dippy was not the official egg terminology. <laughs> it's over easy. That was an embarrassing brunch with girlfriends at the omelet parlor, as well as a liberating awareness about my mother's worrying. I decided that life would be much simpler if I avoided topics mom considered dangerous, which included, but not limited to, buying a new car, buying a used car, leasing a car, putting too much money down, putting zero down, letting a health issue go untreated, taking over-the-counter medication, taking prescription medication, riding on a motorcycle, riding on an ATV, riding on anything with less than four wheels, going anywhere alone at night, going anywhere alone, period. <laughs> that said, after I told my mom I was going on vacation to Paris for a week alone, I anxiously awaited her reaction. Melanie, you cannot go alone! Someone will follow you home, strangle you, and have sex with your corpse. <laughs> Mom, gross! Melanie, you must travel with someone. Well, I'm not, so you're just going to have to get used to the idea. After a long, uncomfortable silence, during which I could feel heat smoldering through Mom's multicolored Chico's top, she continued... <laughs> Well, well, do you even have a money belt? No, I'm planning to bring my brown leather saddlebag. Melanie, a bag can be cut off by professional thieves. Okay, okay, Mom, I got it. But she carried on anyway. I tuned out, and when I keyed back in 20 minutes later, she had shifted the topic of her travel le safety lecture from pickpockets and muggers back to kidnappers and murderers. <laughs> now, this might sound a little paranoid, she prefaced unnecessarily. <laughs> but when you email us at night about your safety, wait, when did I agree to do this? <laughs> Could you always include a code word that we both know ahead of time, just so I know that it is you that is emailing me and not a kidnapper? Gosh, you know, you get kidnapped once and it's like your parents never forget it. <laughs> Ever since my brief ATM abduction in 2007, the phrase, don't worry mom, hasn't meant much. <laughs> the tables had turned. I no longer felt entitled to disobey mommy. Instead, at 32, I was actually considering listening to my mother for the first time in my life. <laughs> Could she be right? 
Boy, was she spot on about going to ATMs at night. <laughs> I recognized that it was pretty gutsy to travel abroad alone just a year after being held up at knife point for 20 terrifying minutes. But I was only going to Paris, France, not Fallujah. It's probably more dangerous going to Disney World. In an attempt to ease mom's fear and my PTSD, I decided to bring in the big guns. I emailed the district attorney who had worked on my case. Deputy Chris Brown and I had become friends during the trial. He responded quickly to my email inquiry. Tell your mom I have never heard of anyone being kidnapped twice. <laughs> At this point, you could go to Columbia with a t-shirt saying, My dad is Bill Gates, and no one would touch you. His blessing was the reassurance I was looking for. Mom, however, still wasn't convinced. She knew better than he, a DA in the homicide division. <laughs> It wasn't that my mom didn't want me to travel, just the opposite, actually. Her greatest love in life, besides spreading cheese on crackers, is traveling. <laughs> she and my dad have worn money, many money belts all over the world. Well, besides the scary places. I can't keep track of all of the places she's referring to, as her list is quite extensive and slightly racist. <laughs> But, off the top of my head, here are a few warnings I remember receiving. Turkey. Don't go there. Men will treat you like they do their goat. South Africa. Don't go there. Monkeys will come into your tent at night. Africa. Don't go there. You'll get cholera, and you'll riff and sweat into a feverish coma. Is it riff? Right? Sorry. Thanks, Mom. <laughs> Thailand, don't go there, they have tsunamis. But if you go, stay on a high floor in the hotel and check for trees you can clutch onto. <laughs> but whatever you do, do not ride an elephant, Melanie. It might go rogue because it's sick of being tethered to the ground with a spike. China, don't go there, you'll get thrown in jail for spitting your gum out and receive 1,000 lashes on your back with some bamboo thing. <laughs> Bali, don't go there. There's one woman to every 20 men. Lots of potential for things like gang rapes or Natalie Holloway disappearances. <laughs> Columbia, don't go there. You'll be forced to be a drug mule and shove balloons that could explode up you. <laughs> Laos, Come on, Melanie, just kill me now and get it over. <laughs> I, I read this to my story before the first time I did it to my mother, and she said, what? What's so funny? This is really good advice. <laughs> but it wasn't that she wanted me to just stay home and pop out a bunch of babies. Well, she did want that, that too. It was just that she wanted me to travel to unscary places and be escorted by a big, strong man. I did have a brawny boyfriend, now my husband, but it was, it was important, though, that I go to Paris alone. Many months of therapy had gotten me to a good place with my trauma from the kidnapping, and this trip was to be the cornerstone in regaining my lost confidence. My boyfriend and my therapist were behind my solo trip 100%. 
Mom was against it 110%. My mom never did give up on her anti-solo trip crusade. It's just not her style. I received terrifying emails about travel stories gone horribly wrong up until the day I left. I tried just deleting the emails immediately before they could infect my inbox and my PTSD head, but the subject lines alone got me gnawing my nails. I finally had no other choice but to set a Gmail filter on my own mother. <laughs> All emails from Melanie's mom, skip inbox, send to the folder titled, Scary Emails from Mom. <laughs> The night before I left for Paris, I made possibly the biggest mistake of my life. I checked the S-E-F-M folder. Fifteen new emails. I only opened the last two, which turned out to be too, too many. The first one said, If anything bad happens, just contact us and we will wire you money, although I have no idea how to do that. <laughs> second one said, one more thing. Be careful of little kids who might act cute just so that their scary pimp can jump you. <laughs> what? She's, yeah, she doesn't get what's so funny. <laughs> In, route to Paris, I was completely paranoid and started acting like a lunatic. First, I assumed a false identity. When the gentleman sitting next to me, uh, sitting next to me on the plane tried to make small talk, I launched into this dramatic story about meeting up with my husband in Paris, who of course had just finished a tour of duty in Iraq. <laughs> who would mess with a military wife? Next, I bitched out a ten-year-old. <laughs> when a rambunctious little boy at Charles de Gaulle Airport accidentally bumped into me, I used a harsh tone and told him that if he didn't respect my personal space, I'd call policia. <laughs> Tears welled up in the little boy's eyes as he, and he mumbled something in French to his pimp. <laughs> Or I guess it could have been his mom, but I wasn't taking any chances. <laughs> I continued to maneuver through Paris at this level of suspicion for the first 48 hours. Then one person after another reminded me that I was in a city nicknamed Gay Paris, so named to convey the copious amounts of fun this marvelous city of lights had to offer. And never had I been more uptight. Just as I started to let my guard down a little and relax, my almighty American hair straightener exploded. I had an adapter, actually I had three. Panicked, I considered running out and finding a French hair straightening iron. But in a moment of clarity, I remembered the real purpose of my trip. So I laid my heat resistant pad over my straightener, thanked it for its service, and finally surrendered. I threw caution to the wind, I let my naturally curly locks loose, and I abandoned myself to the limitless joy to be had in that magical city. When I got back to my hotel room that evening, I had a new email, this time from my dad. Your mother is very worried. <laughs> Have a super time, but stay off the news. <laughs> I did both.
is our show. Will all the storytellers join me on stage? The wonderful Amanda, Cindy, Bonnie, Mike, Patsy. Thank you all so much for coming. I hope you come back. Now you heard, go spread the word. They're funny, smart, and so absurd. Happens every month.